You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. We're delighted to be here because we've got an entrepreneurial thought leader among us uh, today, Donna Nowitzki, who's somebody who's been a personal hero of mine for more than a decade. Donna um, is actually one of our own graduates. She got her bachelor's degree in industrial engineering here at the School of Engineering at Stanford. Uh, went on to do things in international business early in her career, got a Harvard MBA, came back to the Valley, worked for Sun Microsystems, and then was the VP of Marketing for Clarify. Did a number of other startups as, the, as a venture partner with More David Al Ventures. And in addition to taking roughly three startups a year from birth to almost teenage, I guess would be the way that we think about it. So two engineers in a garage with a PowerPoint deck and some code. Donna would actually create customers and revenues for those companies and then hire her successor. She did that for a number of years with MDV. And in the last four years, she also team taught global entrepreneurial marketing with us here at Stanford. And it's been a, an utter joy to work with Donna in that capacity. If any of you are thinking of taking that course in winter and in spring, she'll still be team teaching that course with us next winter and spring. In addition to her current responsibilities, which began, I think, last March, Donna became the CEO of Big Tent Design. Now, you all can read faster than I can talk. You can see the, the things that describe her venture there. It is a totally cool company that creates online communities that help uh, people, whether you're parents and families that are worried about how to create a good community for your children and for each other, or whether you're the Global Leaders, Entrepreneurs, and Altruist Network, uh, Big Tent has a solution that is very helpful for you. So Donna, you've been, you've been a force in the Valley for a long time, and we're just delighted to have you back at Stanford to talk to us about lessons learned as part of your being an entrepreneurial leader. Welcome back to Stanford. Thank you. We're going to do a little bit of a riff. I have five questions, and then we'll turn it over to you. But uh, Donna, where, you want to? Well, I mean, it's just been as much fun delivering on that kind of on that career as uh, as it is to listen to Tom. Sometimes I pinch myself, and it seems like only yesterday I was sitting in those seats out there, figuring out what I was going to be when I grew up. I'm still trying to figure that out, but I'm not in those seats anymore. Um, but yeah, why don't we just kind of dive into your questions, Tom, and, and then I want to leave plenty of time. So if we say some things that pique some interest of yours, you know, just uh, please uh, make some notes and we'll get right back to you and answer, your, an answer those questions. And I'm only going to do five because we want you all to mix it up with Donna as fast as possible. The first question, Donna, is you've been an entrepreneur, you've been an educator, you've been a venture capitalist, an investor. You've looked at entrepreneurship in this valley through these different lenses over the last uh, couple of decades. What are your top five lessons learned? Okay, so let me, um, let me take that from some of the different perspectives that you just listed. Um, when I got my first entrepreneurial executive job, this was 1991 as VP of Marketing with an enterprise software company called Clarify. And at the time, Clarify... Uh, this will sort of date how old it was. It was all written in C++. So it was uh, way back then. And um, we had a dozen employees. I was number 12, but we had no demo, no product, nothing when I joined other than some hopes and dreams and visions. 
And when I was interviewing for the job, one of the questions that I asked the CEO, whose name was Dave Stamm, um, is why, you know, why clarify why this opportunity is this uh, customer relationship management software. It was one of the pioneers. There was no Siebel or Salesforce or anything at that time. And uh, his answer was because this is something that I think is going to be really big, really big. And we have an opportunity to help pioneer this industry. And uh, I know that I'm going to live and breathe this company for the, net, for the foreseeable future, some number of years. And I want to do something that is going to be worth all that time and effort and energy and passion. So um, the lesson there is go big or don't go. You know, think about all the energy you're going to put into it and make sure that it's not just a feature on someone else's product. It's not just a product. It's probably not even just a company, but it's a whole new industry opportunity to change things. And as you're looking at different opportunities as an entrepreneur, kind of if you think of it in those terms, is this going to be worth all my passion, all my time and energy? And you come out of that saying yes, then go for it. Okay, so that's, that's one. Go big or don't go. Second one is, okay, so then I went into venture capital and saw the whole thing from a different point of view. Um, and that was, you know, all these entrepreneurs coming in asking for, uh, asking for money. And then I got a chance to see what happened over time. And some of them met their objectives and some of them didn't. And uh, the lesson I took from that is even early on when you're seeking your seed funding or your Series A funding or the very first dollars into a company, Think about what's the next inflection point where I remove risk from this venture. So, and those are generally, you know, we prove that we can build this product and that it works. We prove that there's a market for it and customers want it. And we prove that we can scale and grow. So those are three really significant milestones. So if you think of your, your seed, your Series A, your Series B as um, achieving those milestones, then what are the sub-milestones to prove that you have achieved that? And align that with the round of funding. So you figure out how much money is it going to cost me to build the company to achieve those milestones. So lesson number two, from a VC point of view, and a, you know, as an entrepreneur looking for funding, align your company's goals with your funding requirements and, your, uh, and have that discussion with your, your VCs. The third... Um, lesson learned, and this is kind of a tough one, and I, I say this one because um, you guys are all in a position where you, could, you might get this wrong. Um, nobody can do it alone. You are all, and the reason I say you're in a position to, uh, to be careful of this one is you're all very capable people, and you're all very capable of doing probably any particular task better than a lot of people around you. But in the end, your success is going to be dependent on your ability to motivate others and encourage others to strive to the level of excellence that you are looking for. Because in the end, there are only 24 hours in a day. And you can't scale because there's a, uh, a limit on the number of hours per day. So I could go on. I have more lessons. But I think I'll stop there. If you want to know the other two, you've got to take Jim. Ooh, I love it. <laughs> so Jim is Global Entrepreneurial Marketing, for those of you who are, who are wondering about the jargon. Uh, Donna, we've got to drill down on something. Most people in Silicon Valley do the entrepreneurial thing for a while so that they can end their career on Easy Street as a venture capitalist. You spend 
seven years in the trenches, this is an entrepreneur building Clarify, and you build it into a significant company. You then spend nine years in venture. What on earth made you decide to go back and become an entrepreneur again? I mean, you, you know, you've got a family, you had a life, and suddenly you're, you're the CEO of Big Ten. I did. I had a family, I had a life. I still have a family. I still have a life, but it is a little different than it was. Okay. Um, so first of all, let me um, explain what my role at MDV was, because it was pretty unusual. Um, I joined MDV in 1998 as a venture partner. When I joined, we kind of didn't know what that meant or what direction my career would take. But what I soon discovered is I loved being a venture partner because A, it meant I could write my own job description. Um, but B, it meant I got to work in a hands-on operating role with a number of portfolio companies. So over the period of almost nine years while I worked there, I was interim VP of marketing in 16 different companies. All kinds of different things from online advertising to email software to data warehouses and security gizmos. And I worked with a lot of great teams. And everything was you know, shortly after funding, because MDV would say, look, here's $3 million and Donna for six months, and she'll help you get started. So it was, it was a fabulous position. And I would still be there today if uh, Nick, Chim, and Lainey Wittkenack didn't come and sort of sweep me off my feet um, with this really, really unique opportunity. Um, so what is so unique about Big Tent, at least from my point of view, is it's a unique combination of my personal and my professional passions. So in my, uh, uh, in my home life, I'm a mom. I have two kids, a husband and a house and uh, a cat that's 19 years old. And, um, I, and so that's obviously a big part of who I am and what's important to me. What Big Tent does is it provides a free online software solution for community groups, for family-oriented groups, like parents clubs and PTAs and soccer teams and um, brownie troops and Cub Scout troops and church groups and neighborhood associations all these kinds of grassroots offline organizations that I'm sure you were uh, members of, and, help, and it, we provide a, an infrastructure for them, for them to, uh, to communicate, to organize, and to participate. And what's more, it's, uh, we have a combined view of all those different activities. So for an individual parent like myself, I have a chance to see the so two soccer teams, a Brownie troop, a Cub Scout troop, the school activities, the PTA activities, and the community stuff all in one place. So it saves me from literally hundreds of emails a, a week or and in some for some people a day keeping up with all their family's activities. And it saves me from having to check six different websites to see when the games are, the meetings, or when I'm supposed to pick the kids up. So it's kind of a one view of what's going on in my community and family life. And I think there's potential for this to be on every computer in the kitchen, right? So I think it's potentially a huge opportunity. So it meets my criterion of go big or don't go. Um, it, it definitely has my passion because I'm a target user for it, a target customer for it, and uh, as are my friends. And... Um, and third, and probably most importantly, we have a phenomenal team. So the team um, is uh, myself and Nick and Laney, the co-founders, and then uh, a total, there are a total of 15 of us, and most of whom are Stanford engineers and English majors, I think. So it's a great team, and we're having a lot of fun building this and building out the dream. So that's why I jumped back in. 
Um, and it's been very exciting, very hands-on. Um, and, you know, maybe someday I'll be back in the venture world. Who knows? And I don't know, how many of you have uh, been to the part of San Francisco that is known as South Park? South Park, show of hands, a few of you? How many of you been kind of south of Market Street to sort of understand what's going on there? So Donna's startup is, it's on 2nd, right, right? It's on 2nd. It's second? on uh, oh, no. Brandon, Brandon between 2nd and 3rd. Brandon between 2nd and 3rd. It's right there in the heart of this really cool area, which was um, a major renaissance in the 90s when you had the big... With the ballpark. Uh, yeah, you had the ballpark going up at all these entrepreneurial companies that were, were just, it was frothy up there. It got a little quiet in 2001, 2002, and I think you must have come in and gotten really good rent. Yeah, we did. Place, we got right? a killer deal. So they've got, they've even got a place you can climb on the roof and sort of stand on the roof of this uh, building and get a, a view of the city and the water, right? Yeah. Very nice. In and, terms and of the lifestyle as an entrepreneur, it beats the hell out of some of the, some of the really crappy places in San Jose that I've, that I've been advising some of my other people uh, <laughs> to work. So she's got class. She's got class. Yeah, it's great. Okay. Let me pause for a second and introduce Pearl and Lainey, who are the, uh, the, my big tent cheering section Hi, there. All right. Lainey's one of the co-founders. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks for coming in, Lainey. Okay, so I've got three more, right? Yep. One is, so. what are the big differences between being a VC and being an entrepreneur? Or maybe the way that you look at... Yeah. Um, okay, so the best VC... So if, how many of you are thinking about potentially a career in venture someday? Be yeah, honest. Be honest. Yeah. It's, it, it is an awesome career. Um, the best VCs are former entrepreneurs and operating executives. So at the heart, you know, there's a lot of similarities between what it, you know, what it takes to be a great VC. Um, so I would advise all of you who want to eventually get into venture capital to go out and get a job at a startup or in an operating company where you're going to learn how to do it right and learn from some strong executives. And um, at that point, if you think about what a VC does day in and day out, they, uh, they look at all kinds of different market opportunities. They primarily judge markets, people, and technology. Um, and once you've kind of been out in the trenches like that, you'll have a much better perspective on what is a good potential market opportunity or technology. Um, and, but even more, they, so they pick deals and then they sit on, on uh, boards of directors and they advise those deals. So once you've been out there doing it, you have a lot more credibility with those entrepreneurs as a board member and you can be of a lot more help to them. So there's a lot in common. Um, that said, the day-to-day -day jobs are night and day different, right? So let me give you just three kind of parallels. Strategy versus execution. I would say the VCs work primarily at a strategic level, advising companies, providing input to strategy. They do not and should not be getting their hands dirty in terms of execution. That's the job of the entrepreneur and the team that's in place. If you see a VC jumping into an operating role, with the exception of the particular kind of role that, that I had at MDV, that may, that's probably not a good sign. So, so. Uh, so that's one. Second is technology versus team building. Um, VCs are very focused on what's the next wave of technology, what's coming out next, uh, and building a portfolio of different technologies and different opportunities. Uh, the entrepreneur is going to 
definitely needs to be up on technology, but he or she is going to make that choice. And then it's all about building a team and executing on the strategy that he or she has chosen. So, so the focus is really on, as I was saying before, you can't do it alone. You've got to build the best team you can possibly build. You've got to believe in your team and, um, and nurture that team to grow the business. So technology versus team building. And the third one is diversity versus singular focus. So if you're in venture, you're building a, a portfolio. And you need to believe that all those deals have a possibility of being home runs, right? But in the end, you have a mixed portfolio, and you're going to fly at the 30,000-foot level advising on strategy and making contacts and helping them um, versus singular focus that the entrepreneur just is going to be the expert on whatever particular field their business is in. So drill down, go deep, know everything, know everyone in that field. So those three things. So strategy versus execution, technology versus team building, diversity versus singular focus. Those are three really different kind of modes of operation that you'll see kind of in the day-to-day -day life of a VC or an entrepreneur. And I would ask yourself as you're thinking about your career, which ones am I passionate about? And that was something that I found when I went to MDV and had an opportunity to you know, go along and look at what the general partners did. And I thought, you know, in the end, that just wasn't what floated my boat. You know, I would much rather give me one, let me build it, let me grow the team. And for me, that's what was fun. And so, again, that's why I'm back doing what I'm doing now. I'd like to pivot on that, that idea of singular focus because you focused on marketing and building a marketing organization and doing the marketing, not just strategy, but executing that marketing and you did it 16 times. I think, we talk about serial monogamy. It's like, there she goes, 16 startups in a row. What did you learn from that? Um, well, going back to one of my top lessons that you can't do it alone, that was kind of, I saw people that were incredibly bright, incredibly promising, fail because they were afraid to delegate. So, you know, that, that was one thing. Second thing, so I had this really unique position because when I was in a company, I was essentially on the executive team of that company. So I reported to the board of directors of that company. And those boards of directors had all kinds of VCs from different firms. And so I got to have a feel for different VC styles, different board members' styles, and... Um, I saw a huge difference and made a lot of notes about, you know, when I'm doing this on, for myself, what kind of a board do I want to build? And um, you may think you don't have a lot of choice in that matter, but you do. It's who you choose to take money from. It's who you choose to add to your board. And you should look for not just the money because money is a commodity. You need to look for investors who have the same kind of passion towards your business, investors who... Um, will put time in and roll up their sleeves in terms of making contacts and introductions for you, and investors who are willing to sit down and spend some time with you strategizing. Because believe me, when you get in those trenches like I am now, sort of by definition, you lose some perspective. So it's great to have board members that are partners with you that can help pull you out of the weeds and you know, bring in that 30,000-foot perspective every now and then. So I really think of my board as part of the team. And a lot of entrepreneurs think, you know, that the board is an adversary and that you'd be, you're, you're losing a lot of value if you treat your board that way. 
Who are a couple of your favorite board members of all time? Well, besides MDV. No, but they, <laughs> no, but they could be. So it could be. I mean, MDV's MDV style. A, um, no, but, but who who of the of the different partners at MDV are? They're, and they're different too. I mean, yeah. uh, Jim Smith, who's on our board now, extremely helpful in terms of providing contacts and uh, and help to us. And believe me, those kinds of in introductions really differentiate a startup. So. Um, Nancy Schoendorf also is great at, you know, rolling up her sleeves and helping out. Um, John Fiber is, sits, kind of sits back a little bit and always comes up with some brilliant idea out of the blue that I never would have thought of. So, you know, those are just some, different, some different types of strengths that, that you get. That's outstanding. Okay. Um, now, I'd mentioned earlier that you've also been a marketing prof here at Stanford for the last few years. Um, I'm so glad you've done it. But uh, how has that work influenced your, your leadership of Big Ten as the CEO of Big Ten? Okay. So Big Ten and also when I started teaching here, I was with oh, uh, MDV. MDV, that's yeah, right. Yeah, so, so um, first of all, more than you think, right? I learn a lot from you guys. I am always paying attention to how you're looking at things because as a venture capitalist, People in this room are the people that are going to build the companies that, a VC, that the VCs will be investing in for the next 10 or 20 years, right? VC thinks very long term. Um, so one of the things I was really looking for in, in teaching global entrepreneurial marketing is, well, what are the hot things that the students are into these days? And when I was a student and when I got out of business school in 1985, just a little, little history here, the hot thing was the AT&T breakup. AT&T was breaking up and all the baby bells were born. And there were some new networking standards, this thing called manufacturing automation protocol that was going to allow computers from different vendors to talk to each other. Imagine that. Um, and then TCPIP came along. So I thought as a you know, young person graduating in 85, you know, that's going to change all the dynamics of the computing industry if you can just plug in a computer anywhere. I didn't have the foresight of the internet. I wish. Um, uh, but I did say, you know, because of that, I'm going to go get a career in, in networking and landed at Sun Microsystems, which was a really also lucky, lucky move. Um, but that, that turned out to be a great ride because for 20 years there were things to do in networking and computer technology. And so now I look at you today and say, where are the students going to go? What, what, are they what are you guys interested in now? And one thing that's huge is the global aspect of what students are doing. A second thing is concern for energy and the environment. A third thing is biotech and life sciences. All those areas are exploding today like networking was about to explode in 1985 when I got out of school. And so... Um, it, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me to kind of see what matters to you because that's where the, uh, that's where the interesting investments will be. Um, from Big Ten's point of view, we're basically a social networking company. So I learn a ton from the students and also my employees who are, many of whom are recent grads, about, you know, how, what clever features are going on out there in social networking. How can we take advantage of those at Big Tent? How can we put a spin for our particular audience um, on those kinds of features? And, um, and that way I don't have to invent it all myself. I can just steal all those good ideas that are already out there. Just a quick show of hands. How many of you are 
um, members of MySpace, hands up. How about Facebook, hands up. How about LinkedIn? So we did, I did this uh, in our in our other class across campus today, and got the similar kind of uh, similar kind of look. So I think the your decision to do some things with uh, Facebook was wise, yeah. prescient, prescient. Yeah. yeah. Good. Uh, I've got a last question, and um, I, this is re this is really important because you actually have a different kind of uh, work life balance and, and dual career story than many people that I know. On the one hand, you can say, well, Donna's got a husband, two kids, and a cat. Yep. And, but on the other hand, the way that, that you and your husband have, have managed your respective careers and your passions and the raising of a family is really neat. And it's something different that I'd love for the students to be able to know that there are maybe alternate models to the ones that they may be uh, familiar with. So could you talk a little bit about how you achieve balance and how your family has sort of sure, I'd done be what happy you do? So, uh, Finding balance is probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. Uh, all the way through being a student and then working at Sun and working at Clarify, I didn't have kids. I acquired a husband somewhere along the way, uh, but he was relatively flexible. When you have kids, everything changes. No longer is it solely your agenda. And they, they move at their own pace, and you need to adapt yourself to their pace. And so. That has been, that's just incredibly challenging, you know, because I'm used to being able to put in whatever hours it takes to get the A, whatever hours it takes to get another customer, whatever hours, and now you can't do that anymore. So um, one thing I, uh, I discovered is you've got to think of balance not in terms of a day or a week or maybe even a month, but balance takes place over a long period of time. So, for instance, in 2006, I worked only a couple days a week, spent a lot of time at home, got involved more in the kids' school, um, got them to make their beds when they go to, go to school, got them to set the dinner table on a regular basis. Some little goals that I had for our family that take time and focus. Um, and building that base allowed me to go now be at Big Tent, which basically is kind of a 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. role. And between my husband and I, John now um, pretty much is home. He's got, uh, he's a professional bike racer these days, so he spends a lot of time on that passion. But it gives him a lot of flexibility to be the primary caregiver of the kids. So while I work really hard during the week, I also find some balance on weekends and am a dedicated world-class soccer mom <laughs> out there with the kids. And uh, so... You, you know, you learn to juggle, you need to change the equation every now and then, but um, who your life partner is is also a pretty key part of that. And, you know, understanding yourself and your priorities is, is an important thing as you make those choices. Let's open it up. What questions do you all have for Donna? Um, in your experience building companies, how important is the agency that companies make in terms of marketing, the question is, how important is the company's name? Um, moderately. I mean, things like you have to be able to spell it. You have to be able to get the URL um, if, it's easily, if it's easy to remember. That's helpful. But you, in, in, as in all things branding, people sweat a lot more about names and logos and the colors on the PowerPoint slide than they really need to. 
because your branding is going to take on the, the value that you invest in it. And you'd be amazed, something that you're really neutral on today, that two years from now you wouldn't change that you know, for your life because you have invested in it. It is now who you are. So your brand is going to build value over time. So the most important thing about branding is to not change it, right, and not lose that value of what you've built. More questions? Can anybody become an entrepreneur? Well, geez, I want to say yes, but it takes, a, it takes a heck of a lot of dedication and passion, and it takes an understanding family, and it takes a lot of conditions have to be going right for you to be a good entrepreneur, and it's really not worth being a bad entrepreneur. <laughs> so... Uh, I would say there probably are not a lot of people that have the singular focus and the willingness to sacrifice on other fronts of their life to be a great entrepreneur. I think people can make those choices, and if they, if they make those choices, then anyone can be a good entrepreneur. You can build that skill set. But if, if, you, um, if you can't make those choices and those trade-offs for it to have this maniacal focus and belief and passion, then you're not going to make it. More questions? Can I, and I'd like to yeah. piggyback on what Donna has said. Remember what Donna said earlier about delegating? To me, having coached hundreds of entrepreneurs, the thing that'll cause an entrepreneur to fail is if you don't trust the people, if you don't trust your team. So if you think you're smarter than they are and you're better than they are and you just sort of can't trust them to do what they need to do on your behalf, the venture will never be, it'll never be a large successful venture. It could be a small, like a, like a pizza parlor. You could run a pizza parlor that way. But if you aspire to really make a difference in the world and to change the world, you've got to gather people around you who are better than you are and trust them to do things you couldn't even imagine to know how to ask them to do. You've got to turn them loose and unleash them and really let them do a reach for the stars. And Donna knows how to do that big time, and I think that's, you, you delegate extraordinarily well, and I think that, that sort of lack of trust and inability to let go is the thing that'll get you every time. Yeah, one of the things I learned from the CEO at Clarify when I was a VP there is he was really great at sharing all information of what was going on with the company with everybody who worked there. So everybody knew what the cash balance was. Everybody knew the customers we won and the customers we lost. Everybody knew whether development was on schedule or running late, like uh, as is often the case. So what happens when you have a free flow of information like that is people figure out all kinds of ways to contribute so far beyond their job description. They care because they can make a difference, you know, and at, at uh, Big Tent, we're 15 people, you know, so I was talking the other day about a new advertising um, program that we're working on that allows market segmentation, whatever, and I had an advertiser that um, targets families with kids from 9 to 11, and I said, that is really great, so now we can find in the Big Tent system how many families there are with kids from 9 to 11, but I don't know how many that is, and we finished, it was an all-hands meeting, we finished the meeting and I get a little G-talk from one of the developers who says, I ran the report, I, go, I went in the database, I ran the report, there are 1,000 
um, families with kids in that range. And it's like, I didn't ask her to do that. She just took it upon herself, you know. And it just, it was so great that, you know, she, she voluntarily pitched in and did that. And it helped me when I was then talking with that uh, prospect, prospective partner later to be able to share that information. Other questions? Here's one. Oh. I just had a question um, on the three things you mentioned kind of the, the VC can look for um, in funding with the proven product, uh, proving that the customers want the product, and then proving that it's scalable. Um, just wondering if you had any thoughts or comments around you know, a situation where you have a product that's a, a good or working product, have a customer base, but to get the kind of scalability that the VC might want to see. Uh, you might need more funding to do the kind of mass marketing and, and sales. Mm-hmm. How do you resolve that kind of chicken egg syndrome where it takes funding to get the marketing sales, but get the funding from DC, you have to show a certain amount of revenue your and scalability? Well, so I'd say you have a pretty good shot at it if you have a proven product that's working and you have users who are using it. What you need to do then is show the venture uh, investors that, there's, that there is a potentially very large market. So you need to do your market research homework and figure out how many potential users are there for that and, how, and what's your strategy for going out and getting those users. So, and then you can take that. You should be able to take the research of exactly how big the market is, exactly how are you targeting, what problem do you solve for them, and um, take that to the venture investors and say, you know, be able to show them what the potential is for your business. I mean, that's, you're, you've already, you're two steps ahead. Another? You, yes, you're the caller. Um, as your experience as a VC, what were some technologies that the venture capital firms um, banked on, uh, like IDEO technologies that, that actually didn't pan out? And why do you think some of those technologies didn't work out the way that the venture capital firms thought they would? Wow, that's a really broad question. Well, believe me, there are a lot more that don't than that do. So, um, so one that I worked in was a supply chain software company. And so they built an enterprise software application for communicating between uh, manufacturers and their suppliers and making that supply chain more efficient. And it was fabulous entrepreneur very high credibility in the marketplace. He was a former Deloitte and Touche consultant, so he was a real expert. Fabulous engineering team. They executed like mad. They built a beautiful product, but there just wasn't enough pain in the market, so the market really never evolved. Okay, so that's one one problem. Another one uh, was... Uh, there's a situation where um, the market's not ready yet and you hire a sales team and the sales people go out and sell it but actually the market is ready but the product wasn't ready so they hired the sales organization which are very expensive people you know making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and even when you hire a top-notch salesperson and you don't want to hire someone who's not a top-notch salesperson right you're gonna pay them you're gonna need to advance them that much money, whether they're selling or not, even if they're on commission. So um, he would go out, or they would go out. They had great, the market was there. The market was dying for this product, but we just couldn't get it to work enough. So in that case, the market was ahead of the product. You know, it was 
such a great market that we would go out, we would demo, and it would just fall on its face and not work. And the market, the customers would say, oh, darn, you know, go back and make it work and come back when it does. You know, whereas in more competitive industries, you would just be toast. You know, someone else would come in and swoop, swoop the deal. So, you know, market's not ready, product's not ready, uh, leadership challenges, you know, lead, leadership teams that, you know, fall in upon themselves and can't motivate a team. So, you know, all kinds of things. Many more things can go wrong. Where the president fell in love with a single vice president of HR. <laughs> the married president fell in love with the, <laughs> the single vice president of HR and decided to leave his wife and marry the vice president of HR that was making decisions about, you know, compensation and everything else about everybody else in the company. And they didn't even realize all of the, like, legal and other problems that they were getting themselves into. <laughs> and I sort of nudged a couple of the VCs, actually some people that you and I both know, and said, that's illegal. You can't, can't, can't do, do that. that. And went, oh, really? Oh, okay. So they <laughs> kind of got in and cleaned it up a little bit. But it, that sort of thing happens. I mean, there are all sorts of really weird things that happen. Look, when you're working 90 or 100 hours a week, and you know, you're jacked up on caffeine and, and, uh, and uh, energy drinks and stuff like that, all sorts of weird friendships are formed. <laughs> so, let, me, let me just add one other favorite one. Um, so there's a talk that I give in the gem class called uh, the Tango. Yeah. And um, to give you a little preview, yeah, it, you have to develop the market while you're developing the product. So because you have to build the trust of your customers and future customers, and you have to start. If you've, how many of you have read any of Jeffrey Moore's books or articles? Okay, crossing the chasm, that sort of thing. So I'm a Jeffrey Moore disciple, uh, and I have lived his, his strategies for a long time now. But if you're not out there developing the customer base and your reference base while you're developing the product, you're basically going to get the product to some state that then you decide, okay, now it's time to go sell it. And it's kind of a one in a million chance that you got that right, that you got the product right. So what happens is you, kind of, you haven't built the relationships with the customers. You haven't kind of married the product and the market at, at the same time as you go. And you end up basically race, wasting a round of funding because you'll end up having to make changes in the product. You'll end up taking longer to get your first customers and start building your reference base. So um, that's another really key product that oftentimes an entrepreneur who comes from the technical side who's really excited about this technology and, you know, believes the VC has just endorsed his or her vision and he's going to go off and build this thing and they forget all about going out and building the market at the same time. So that's another big problem. What were your biggest success and failures so far as, uh, as both VC and entrepreneur? Um, so... As I look back on my career, probably the thing I'm proudest of is the, the company we built at Clarify. Um, you know, Big Tent is still really, really early, and I'm looking forward to saying that's my greatest success, but we have a ways to go. Um, but Clarify, I joined as employee number 12 in 91. We went public in 95. When I left in 98, it was 
100 million revenues and 500 employees. And we built what we set out to build in terms of a company and product and customer base. And it was tons of work, you know, 80-hour weeks for seven years, but absolutely thrilling. And the friends that, we made, that I made doing that um, are still people I keep in touch with today. And, you know, one of the things that happened, so we, we went public in 95, and some things change in how you, you have to report to Wall Street then, right? And Wall Street asks different questions than customers ask. And so for a call about, I'd say, maybe nine months or 12 months into our public life, we weren't well prepared, and we just cratered on the conference call, the quarterly conference call, and the stock tanked. And, in fact, it took our competitor's stock down as well. <laughs> it was so bad. And, uh, but what, what was so motivating to me is the employees, our competitors started losing employees. Our employees all stayed because our employees, you know, back to that philosophy of sharing all the information, the employees knew where we were winning, where we were not winning, what was going on with the company. They knew that we were fine, and this was just a Wall Street, Wall Street phenomenon. And, you know, yeah, we, the, the, the management team screwed up the conference call, mea culpa, right? <laughs> but everybody stayed, and everybody, you know, just kept working and built it back. And that, to me, was a real highlight in, in my career, to have built the, a team with that kind of uh, um, community. In your ventures, how soon do you start warring and establish financial controls? Um, financial controls like what? Accounting systems, reporting, uh, to make sure you really have a good handle on your financial So it's not very hard when you only have 15 employees and the money's only going in one direction. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I watch that stuff monthly. I have a very detailed budget, but you know when it's only 15 of us and we can all sit around a table and say, well, should you know should we buy this plant for the company or not? You know, <laughs> we make major decisions together like that. <laughs> um, so believe me, cash is king in a startup, and I learned that lesson the hard way, the hard way during the bubble too. Um, so we penny pinch every dime. Um, I went from having this beautiful office on Sand Hill Road to an office with no matching furniture, um, <laughs> which Tom has seen. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. Penny pinch it, dime. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the control is there. It's it's I would say somewhat informal now because it you don't want to have a lot of bureaucracy and overhead at this stage. Lainey wants to add something, please. I just want to add that, like, from the moment you start, you want to be thinking about, you want, you want to always be thinking ahead. So, you know, right when we started, even, you know, even before we started kind of pitching our idea, we were already thinking about, you know, who we needed to get involved in terms of bookkeeping, and we found, like, an office manager that we could work with on a, like, real contract basis. So, you know, I think from, from the beginning, you want to be thinking about those things. Yeah. And you want to instill in the company a culture of, you know, you spend the company's money probably like you spend your own. You know, would you spend your own money for that plant? Probably not. Can you live without the plant? Yeah. So. Yes. 
coming back on one of the things that seems to be very hot, global aspect, and uh, growing, your, growing your customer base as you grow, but as you develop your product. Uh -huh. One very frustrating um, thing in Facebook is that you have to be something for your cities. So back in Europe, where they don't speak English that, that well in France or Germany, we are being a French thing or a German thing, and then it comes up with very grammatical, exotic phrases. And my question is, like for Big Central, for any type of software where you have to go big or not go, is 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 it impossible to not be thinking about the global aspect in step one? Like Facebook clearly have not translated any of their, their pages, and uh, although a couple of petitions are going on that in that direction, is Big Ten thinking about that? On your web page in the About Us tab, you say that it's thriving across the U.S., but there's no mention of any other geographic zone. So far we are, so we've built the infrastructure to go global. The, the trade-off you make there is um, for Big Ten, it's a very uh, word of mouth and viral driven market. So our focus is to establish ourselves in major metros and grow from there. Um, and it's much easier to do that when you can get on a plane and be there in an hour or two. So we've made a conscious decision not to spend the time and the money on the, uh, across the um, seas flights. That said, those communities are there, and the infrastructure is there for our application to glo go global. And we probably have a few global, in fact, I was uh, talking to someone in Nigeria on Big Tent the other day in the Glean group. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have one, at least one global group on Big Tent now, um, and I would anticipate a lot more. And we're trying to we're trying to get them to think globally across the board. The the uh, you 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 get a lot of pressure from the other members of the teaching team that are part of this yeah. global leaders on person altruist network. Professor Diana Romfeldt, who is Swedish, uh, but has worked all over the world, and she's her classes have um, typically twenty or thirty different nationalities represented. And when we do classes, we'll do courses. For example, I'm going to teach a case on Tesla Motors in her course at Stockholm <coughs> School of Entrepreneurship on Thursday morning. And we do it from here. So there's a lot of that sort of thing mm -hmm. going on. Donna has, Donna has gone to Sweden and has uh, actually yep. uh, taught entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial marketing over there. We try to get her to do more, but... <laughs> and believe me, I would love to see no, those it's, trips. So it's, it's <laughs> the, the, your comment is a very important one. And yeah. it, it, what we've also learned is that um, the size of your domestic market for whatever it is that you're trying to do will change the momentum in terms of how quickly you go international, how quickly you go global. Uh, Israeli companies, Singaporean companies, uh, Scandinavian companies tend to go global a lot faster than many U.S. companies. And we ignore international markets at our peril, particularly in this global day and age where it's not that hard for somebody, if you get a pretty good idea, to morph it and make it better I mean, a French team can make a better version of Facebook, I mean, Facebook in France than Facebook can if Facebook doesn't really focus on doing a great French version. So if you wait a while, you're dead. Microsoft, and people don't know this about, about Microsoft and Lotus, one, two, Lotus, but I studied those two companies very carefully in the 1980s and 19, uh, 1980s up until around 1990, and Microsoft, um, was losing to Lotus in the United States in spreadsheets, in word processor. Well, it was losing to somebody else in the word processor, but it was like second in most of the major applications. 
it went to France, to Germany, to, uh, to different countries in Europe, and it went to Japan, while Lotus was just having a good time here in the United States. And Lotus did not go internationally, international as aggressively as Microsoft did. And when Lotus decided to go to Europe, Microsoft was there in a market share leadership position in each of those categories. And it allowed Microsoft to come back in the 90s from a position of strength from these other markets where it was number one. And Lotus never knew what hit them. Never knew. So you're, you're, you've got, you're onto something really big and really important. I'm stunned that Facebook and a couple of these other sort of Web 2.0 companies are as unaware of what you're talking about as they seem to be. Don has architected the stuff that you can, go, you, can, you can go into different languages, you know, like that. Some of these other companies haven't even done that. Okay. Uh, let's see. In the, in the far back. Depends on the startup. The question is, what are the top five most effective ways to market a startup? Um, Number one. <laughs> well, first of all, in all seriousness, you do need to have someone focused on it, right? So, in '91, before Clarify had a product, they brought me in to figure out what we were going to do in the marketing front. And Dave Stan, the CEO, said, you know, we're not going to hire sales yet because if you and I can't sell this thing, no one can sell this thing. So, so he and I went out and first, before you can market, you need to understand, you need to have marketing strategy, right? You need to understand what customers are we going after, what's the pain point in those customers, what problem do we solve from them, what are our competitors offering as alternative ways to solve that problem, where does this fit on the customer's priority list? And you need to understand all that stuff inside out before you can start broadcasting things like marketing messages, right? So, um, so you've got to figure that out. And in so doing, hopefully you will, require, you will acquire a few leading lead customers, early adopter customers. Then those customers become your absolute best marketing material because whether you're a word-of-mouth viral business like Big Tent is or Facebook is uh, or you're an enterprise software business um, selling to other companies, your customers are always going to be much more credible than you are in conveying your message. So you want to make sure that those first customers that you work with are going to be referenceable customers and, you know, and work with them. And I'm always willing, you know, back when I was in a business that charged money for software, I was always willing to give generous discounts, like 50% discounts, to my early customers in exchange for um, working with me on references and customer profiles and things like that. So building up a strong customer base and having references is first. Um, then there's all kinds of free marketing that you have to make sure that you are all on top of as a startup. Because first thing is, if, the best thing you can do is if it's free. The second best thing is if you're spending other people's money. So you want to look for opportunities that give you free marketing, like having like search engine optimization on your website, you know, having a good website and optimizing so that it gets found um, for free. Uh, and then um, the next thing is, you know, are there partners that you can work with that have mutual benefit to you and the partner to go out and go to market together? When I was with Clarify, we ran on Oracle Database and Sybase and others. And they didn't have people to go out and push their databases, but they had money. I had people, but no money. So it was a, a marriage made in heaven. I spent their money, used my people, 
we were all happy. Um, so look for ways to partner with other people and, uh, and leverage their resources. Um, I'm not sure. Do you have any specific questions of marketing? Okay, great. Um, I'm kind of curious about your evolutionary leader. Um, did you get much experience before you got into startups or leadership maybe through your childhood or in school? And if not, um, or did you just jump in and learn where to go and not leave with the best experience from the um, you know, it's funny, um, I did, but nothing formal, you know, the, the usual, oh, right, um, did I get any formal, did I get, did I have positions of leadership before I started working as an executive? And um, so I would say I, I did have, you know, the usual student council stuff, student government stuff in high school. Um, a few things while I was a student at Stanford, um, but not nothing huge. I wasn't student body president or anything. Um, but probably where I learned most of my leadership skills are my first job after business school at Sun, where I was a product manager there. And as a product manager, you are like a little mini general manager for a product. It's your responsibility to make sure that product is successful in the marketplace. The problem is nobody works for you. So you have to figure out how to motivate <laughs> writers to write about it and customer service people to return your customers' calls and engineers to develop the right features and functions and salespeople to go out and sell it. And none of these people have any formal responsibility to you. So that is probably the best leadership training that you can get straight out of school, is to put yourself in that kind of an environment that is, it is fairly measurable because you can see, you know, is this product selling? Um, but you're going to learn the skills of working with all kinds of different people and motivating people and figuring out how to get them inspired to make your product successful or to help you. Nice question. So Donna, you've talked about passion today. Surely you're very passionate about Big Ten. And I think you're right. Passion is a great asset for an entrepreneur. It can move many mountains, but not all. But the other job of the CEO also is to be objective. And often your passion can cloud your objectivity, especially if markets change or uh, something's now different. How do you balance between being passionate and being objective? And if you could share any experience today, that would be very helpful. So, um how do you balance being passionate and objective as a leader? Um, some of that, so I like to have my facts in order. I prepare and over-prepare and analyze and think <laughs> a lot. Now I'm commuting to San Francisco, so I have more time to do that. Um, so, so the objective side of me, I'm, I'm a very pragmatic kind of person. So I, like, I do like to have my kind of facts in order. So She's kind of scary as a, as a colleague team teaching. You cannot bullshit her about anything. Some there. people would say <laughs> anal. No. <laughs> Tom's very kind. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, I like to feel, this is, I think, part of why I chose to be on the operating side instead of the venture side. I like to feel like I really know what I'm doing. And that's just part of who I am. So there's an analytical side of me that, caused me to be an engineer here that has to have the facts. But then that's sort of combined with the passion side that, okay, once I have those facts, I can see where this could go. And at MDV, they said I had 
um, extreme optimism, which was another reason that I wasn't a great venture investor. Because I thought, oh, well, they seem really smart, and that seems like a good idea. Let's give them some money. <laughs> Not a good idea, right? <laughs> um, so I think that's part of the nature is it's great to be passionate, but you also have to make sure that you have the facts and you've done the homework. And you surround yourself with teammates who are also a good balance, too, who right. offer different things. Great. Thank you, Donna. My pleasure. We have to wrap up. Uh, <laughs>